Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Cristina Moya. She is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Davis. She is an evolutionary anthropologist interested in how humans respond adaptive, adaptively to culturally structured social worlds. Two main foci of her research are intergroup interactions and social cognition, and cross-cultural variation in social effects on reproduction. So, Dr. Moya, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, let's start with one of the topics of your work. What are ethnic categories? Yeah, I think this is an important thing to agree upon in terms of definitions, because yeah. I think I use it in ways that are not necessarily the most common, um, commonly perceived or used ways, which maybe is not a good choice. Um, maybe we should come up with a new word. But um, at least in the American context, when people talk about ethnicity, they're almost always thinking about racialized groups, groups mm. that, um, so in the US context, for example, if you, go, if you answer a census, it'll probably ask you whether you're of African descent, European descent, probably they'll call it black, white, um, of East Asian descent, and then independently whether you're Hispanic or not. And so those are the kinds of categories, probably also Native American, right? Like those are the type of categories that people have in mind when we think about ethnicity. Um, but because I'm an evolutionary anthropologist, two things happen. One, the evolutionary theory helps us think through how plausible it was that those types of categories were even relevant for most of our evolutionary history, and they probably weren't in terms of um, when we talk about racialized, like large phenotypic differences that have been thought of as like inherited intergenerationally and essential. Um, and they're clearly in the American context of histories associated with colonialism, with slavery. Um, so it has a very specific kind of um, connotations, right, and ideologies behind them. And those are relatively recent compared to our deep evolutionary history of probably interacting with groups that probably have some cultural differences between them, but don't have these large kind of inequalities between them, um, where one of them is a state or an empire and the other one isn't. That's probably deeper in human history, um, but not the first thing that comes online, right? The first kinds of groups that we're probably thinking about are not associated with empires or states, um, but may have cultural differences between them. So I um, try to define ethnic groups also by, um, looking at the cross-cultural variation that even exists today, pretty minimally as groups of people that people, like people self-identify as being members of these groups and there's some degree of cultural difference between them. There's some level of cultural clustering. And it's true that once we use that definition in, you know, the, let's say large scale societies with a lot of kind of complex social structure and division of labor, that kind of definition may be applied to things like um, being a goth or a punk, let's say, or being um, maybe even a, uh, in the postal service or a farmer, right? Things that start having occupational connotations or small kind of countercultural groups might also fit that definition. So a lot of anthropologists think that an additional component to that is necessary for being considered something like an ethnic or an ethnic group is that there's some sense of common origin or like being having kind of common ancestry, um, not even if it's not 
um, borne out by the genetic evidence, just that that's part of the ideology. And I think that we're still too early in our understanding of cultural diversity to say that that's a necessary condition. I guess I would like to think of that as an outcome variable. So to what extent do common origins have to be part of the ideology when we're talking about culturally structured groups? So I try to be a little bit more minimal than even some anthropologists are in terms of using that term and want to figure out like what are the necessary and sufficient criteria for people thinking that they belong to a group. I think mm -hmm. they can be very minimal actually. There's a whole group, there's a whole lineage of psychology you're probably familiar with, you know, like trying to show how minimal the cues can be for people to kind of adopt a sense of group identity. And there's debates about that literature. But um, yeah, I think the task for people who are interested in, one of the tasks for people who are interested in groups and cultural evolution is to figure out how the different elements of ideology, cultural content, identification, kind of start mapping onto each other or come together. Mm -hmm. Of course, because of the political, the unfortunate political ramifications that these kinds of topics have, this is, these are delicate questions, at least to some extent, but have we evolved to distinguish between ethnic categories or is that just some sort of social construction, for example? Yeah, I think if, um, if we talk about ethno-racial categories, the way that we think about them in the US, and in, I think probably a lot of Western Europe as well, with like recent immigrants kind of creating new boundaries anyway that um, probably don't reflect part of our human evolutionary history. I think a series of developmental psychologists, evolutionary psychologists that have shown to me pretty convincingly that we probably don't have psychological adaptations that are specific for thinking about like racialized groups or mm. um, groups that would be defined by phenotypic differences would be the more minimal way of saying that. So for example, you're probably familiar with like Rob Kurzban did this um, study in the 90s now maybe showing that um, you can show participants in the US pictures of black and white men who are um, in basketball teams that are not correlated, independent of their race. And if you give people enough information about their basketball team membership, they'll actually not use the racial information for categorization. Mm. Um, and this is with adults. So um, well, Dave Petrzewski has continued this line of research with adults as well in the US. I think there's a little bit of work from Brazil as well, showing that if you give people different kinds of coalitional information, the, their use of the racial information drops. Now, Dave Petrzewski has also convincingly shown that you can still bring that back to the fore. So you can still make people start using that information again because they've had a lifetime of using it. It's not like they're going to forget about it, right? Now you can connect that to some of the developmental psychology evidence showing that um, children don't seem to have, and even infants don't seem to have particularly strong biases towards um, members of the same racial category as their parents or caregivers, right? Mm -hmm. But they already do start having some of this, some biases towards um, speakers of the same language or dialect um, or accent as their parents. So I think there's 
a growing body of literature and evidence that suggests that we've probably come prepared to be very acute um, learners of kind of linguistic differences that will potentially then map on to important social categories or ethnic categories. But, you know, some maybe a silver lining here is that there doesn't seem to be any either theoretical or um, evidence, any theoretical reason or empirical evidence that racial categories are kind of an innate part of human cognition. Um, so there's, yeah, I think that it's, I think it's still unclear whether even those predispositions for um, thinking, for paying attention to and thinking in terms of linguistic categories um, are because of language learning mechanisms or because of group psychology mechanisms. So I also have some evidence in Peru that children, once they get to be about four or five years of age, um, start using uh, language categories to form stereotypes and make predictions about strangers. And this is in the context of Quechua and Aymara language differences, which are mm -hmm. not racialized differences. There aren't um, large inequalities between Quechua and Aymara speakers. Um, they're neighbors in the Peruvian Altiplano and they have been neighbors for a long time, which is part of the reason why I started working there. Mm -hmm. The adults don't use these categories to make predictions about others, at least not in the game that I use for this task. And even in everyday life, we don't really have very strong stereotypes about these language groups at the border. And despite that, the children do start using it in that way. So again, that starts being a little bit stronger evidence that maybe children are predisposed to not just pay attention to language, but also think about in socially meaningful ways. Um, but I still think it's possibly consistent with it being the fact that we're very um, good at language learning. And so that becomes a really important part of what we pay attention to early on in life. Um, so I, I'll be actually writing an article, I think, with um, Dave Petrzewski to <laughs> talk through some of the questions of like, what is the state of the evidence in terms of you know, we have like group cognition um, that's evolved part of our psychology. And so I hope to have a clear picture at the end of that review article. I think that we still jump to that conclusion too quickly, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So do you think it would be correct to say, at least with the evidence and the information we have now, that there probably are some ethnic markers that people are predisposed to paying attention to, but those do not necessarily correlate with some social categories that people in different societies develop, like, for example, race or others like that, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, if, you know, we pair the developmental evidence, meaning like looking at children and like how they are learning about a world that's really complicated and could go in many different directions, right? Maybe it's race, maybe it's religion, maybe it's um, ethnic, um, language, Maybe mm -hmm. it's how we're dressing. So we have to figure out what's meaningful for which kinds of social interactions. And we pair the fact that they seem to have certain kinds of biases to pay attention to things like um, language um, and even some very you know, subtle differences in language like accent. Um, so infants, when they come out of the womb, they can already differentiate cadence right, of different languages from having that input in utero. 
And then we see the cross-cultural variation in adulthood, right? Where sometimes, you know, you're Serb or Croatian and you speak pretty much the same language, but you use a different script for it and you have a different religion and, you know, there's quite a lot of ethnic tension. Um, or you can be, um, you know, at a different border, like the Quechua Mara one that I study where you're, they're totally different languages, not even mutually intelligible, and there isn't that much tension. Um, and they're like, actually what's starting to be important is, um, and socially meaningful is like whether you're Catholic or evangelical, for example. And that's obviously like a very recent 20th century boundary because the evangelicalism was introduced there by the um, Americans. Um, and that, um, but even then it's not really a hostile interaction. Um, and you start seeing that like basically almost anything is possible, right? In terms of what cultural systems develop by adulthood. So um, I'm starting to be of the opinion that, you know, these biases that we might have early on in life don't, are not that important for figuring out what the landscapes look like later on and that we have to start thinking about cultural evolutionary processes um, and structural issues like what resources people are fighting over and so forth when trying to understand the adult landscape of ethno-religious, ethno-linguistic, um, ethno-racial kind of divisions um, and groups that matter. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, of course, I want to avoid the politics associated with all of this as much as possible because I find it really annoying and I think that most of the time people, particularly the ones that like to focus on racial issues negatively, of course, uh, use and abuse science for their own political ends and misinterpret it and so on and so forth. But I mean... I, would it be correct at least to say that it's pretty much not scientifically based for someone just by looking at the color of the skin of another person, assuming that they are part of a particular culture, a particular cultural background and associate negative behaviors and negative negative, of course, that's uh, not probably a scientific term to use here, but some negative features of their culture, because, I mean, it's not that a particular race is necessarily associated with a particular culture, right? Yeah, I think there are correlations in the world right now, just because if you, for example, take the example of, um, like, recent migrants that were have that are coming from Venezuela to the US, right? Like there it's been a couple maybe we have a couple generations of Venezuelan immigrants, but like of course there are cultural differences in the world and there's going mm -hmm. to be like yeah. some mapping to nationality, right? But assimilation, you know, there's several processes that mean that um, you know, yeah, like you say, race, um, or even any phenotypic character isn't going to map onto culture. Mm -hmm. One of the assimilation right like people we have lots of evidence that people um assimilate like within one generation already start looking behaving being culturally more like the host society when they immigrant when they immigrate whatever direction of immigration that is and you know there's a research area looking at 
um, what part, you know, what parts of culture do people adopt from the host societies and what parts do they think are important and do they keep? Um, but it's very clear, for example, like there are multiple generations of um, Japanese immigrants in California where I live, where they've maintained um, the you know, Japanese language, very important, but in a lot of other ways are culturally Californian. Um, and the fact mm. that they speak Japanese still has clearly nothing to do with their ancestry other than the cultural transmission has been important. Another reason why race is such a bad predictor of culture is because um, the, the cues that we use are, um, we're really race, like phenotype idiots, I would say. Um, like the cues that we use to denote people's race are really just map on so poorly to cultural variation. Um, the fact that in the US, one drop of African ancestry, right? Even if the majority of your ancestors are white um, and have probably contributed more culturally to you, means that it's going to map on poorly. And then obviously black like encompasses variation from a huge, you know, an even ancestry-wise, like a huge continent. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe even other continents, because I have a feeling that Americans might not might just use melanin, so skin tone, as a cue to determine whether somebody's black, not realizing that there are very dark skinned people in other parts of the world that are not Africa as well. So like in Melanesia um, or in you know, Aboriginal Australia. So I'm not even convinced that Americans really, um, idea of blackness maps on very well to like even having some ancestry in the African continent. So, um, you know, then you mentioned the second part. So it's definitely racial, um, unscientific and uh, not to mention problematic, but also inaccurate mm -hmm. to think of race mapping onto culture. The other part that you mentioned is believing that one is superior over the other. And that's mm -hmm. um, in terms of race, that's like obviously also foolish. Um, I think in terms of culture, it's also foolish, but it's a much harder conversation to have because we've mm -hmm. internalized certain norms as so definitely superior. So if some, there are definitely cultures in the world where, for example, like university education isn't valued, right? And that's not a problem. They have like skills and knowledge that like, of course. we don't have, <laughs> that we would be idiots. We would die and we were in their place. Um, you know, most of the people that I work with in Highland Peru don't have a university education, although they are adopting those norms where university education is prestigious and valued. Um, but I would die as an agropastoralist in the Altiplano for like lots of different reasons, right? So I think that level of conversation of cultural relativism, um, I 100% agree with the sentiment that you're having, but it's such a harder conversation to have that mm -hmm. like this this is an important point that I make in all my classes and you know it takes hopefully some, um, hopefully not as much as like the full class to make the point but um, I think it's an important role that anthropologists play in public discourse is that conversation about what does cultural relativism mean what does it mean what would it even mean for one cultural group to be superior to the other it doesn't really make sense in the abstract so um, yeah but that goes beyond even kind of notions of white supremacy and racial superiority, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So we've already alluded here to things, of course, like stereotypes and essentialism and ethnocentrism. So are the, do these things stem from the same psychological basis? 
Right, yeah, that's an argument I've tried to put forth because I think it's very common for humans because we're very, I do think we end up being very group thinkers. It's very mm -hmm. easy for us, like, I belong to this group. Um, and maybe that's because of cultural pressures. Um, I think there probably is some evolved predisposition there or um, you know, psychological machinery there working as well in concert with cultural pressures. Yeah. Um, but I think because of that, we tend to think of like all the things that make us groupish or make us belong to a group, like um, having certain cultural traits, other people being stereotypically one way or the other not liking other groups, wanting to be friendly to members of your own group. We tend to think of them all as part of the same process. And in fact, some psychologists do talk about like group psychology without breaking down the stereotyping from the um, cooperation within groups, from the hostility between groups. I think there's a pretty good recognition now across several fields that just because you're in group favoring doesn't mean you're hostile towards out groups like that. We mm. can see cross cultural evidence that you can have strong within group cooperation without it necessarily meaning that there's hostility between groups or towards an out group. Mm -hmm. um, and psychologists have documented that as well. So that there are lots of lines of evidence that show that at least out group hostility and in group love are pretty distinct phenomena and there are different circumstances that will elicit that. Now that doesn't mean that in group love at least if you ask me i think it's still potentially problematic because it means that you might have biases in favor of your group in a way that if there's if it's if you're playing a zero-sum game yeah you might not give those opportunities to somebody else right so it's still potentially a problem um but then other elements of um other reasons why you might work with your um, in-group might have nothing to do with cooperation or being altruistic towards them, right? It could be something like coordination. This is a big distinction that um, if you pay a little bit of attention to game theory is a very important one. Um, and I think I want to give credit where credit's due. I think that Richard McElrath um, has this model from the early 2000s that was born out of um, some frustration at the idea that ethnic markers any arbitrary ethnic market could kind of foment cooperative altruistic behavior quite easily. And he shows that that would be quite hard. You'd need to have a lot of assumptions in your model to make that work. Um, but what is pretty easy to get going is interacting preferentially with other members who share your ethnic marker for coordination purposes. So to be clear, the difference between being altruistic and coordinating with somebody is that with altruism, you're paying a cost to benefit somebody else, right? And so this is really hard to get going. And I know you have a lot of interviews in your show um, talking about the evolution of cooperation. And so probably this has been already um, discussed. But with coordination, there's um, it's the case that you want to interact with other people who have your same expectations. So for example, it's easier for us to coordinate right now having this interview because we both speak English thankfully for me, because my Portuguese is non-existent, right? It'd be much harder <laughs> to um, coordinate if you only spoke Portuguese and I only spoke English, right? And it's not that I dislike the Portuguese language or Portuguese people, but it's a coordination problem. Um, and there are other elements, because we're such a deeply cultural species, there's lots of ways that sometimes we don't even recognize that we might 
it might be easier for us to coordinate with others who share similar expectations. So for example, if we go out to dinner, do we split it evenly? Or does the person who make more money pay it? Or do I pay it this time and you pay it next time, right? Mm. These are all equally good norms, but we just have to be sure that we're on the same page about it so that you don't start thinking that I'm <laughs> on you, right? Yeah. So this is another reason why you might have in-group favoritism um, along cultural lines, um, maybe ethnic lines, right? Again, not racial, but like ethno-cultural lines. Um, that's quite different than wanting to be altruistic towards others. And I think that distinction is becoming clear in the literature as well. Um, at least theoretically, but empirically, it's really hard to differentiate for um, for researchers, right? Because you see people maybe interacting with others like them, and knowing exactly the motivation behind it is hard, and they may co-develop. Um, and then finally, like you can have stereotypes about categories without necessarily not wanting to interact with them. And the classic cases of these are, for example, trade, trade relations, right? Mutually beneficial trade relationships are oftentimes across cultural boundaries or across ethnic lines. Um, because if there's any kind of division of labor across ethnic or cultural groups. So um, in that case, you would actively want to find somebody who has potentially different cultural norms along some dimensions um, and you would have potentially stereotypes that you know x group is very good at um, hunting mm -hmm. and you know they might provide me food that i want so you might have those stereotypes but they don't have a negative valence necessarily and they actually might encourage you to interact with them for something like trade purposes so i think once you start looking at the diverse ways that ethnic boundaries are shaped um, cross-culturally, you start seeing that like all of these different things that we think of as groupishness kind of fall apart as one cohesive um, part of like cognitive system, right? Yeah. Do people usually think about ethnic groups as stable? And I mean, generally speaking, what influences how people think about ethnic groups? Yeah, that's an ongoing um, area of research for me. I think, again, because Americans and maybe even Europeans as well um, tend to think about ethno-racial categories. And not only that, think of your ancestry as being what makes you a member of an ethno-racial category. We tend to think of, you know, being white as intergenerationally stable and something that is stable throughout your life. Um, being black as intergenerationally stable and something that you can't change throughout your life. Mm -hmm. And Larry Hirschfeld is a cognitively oriented anthropologist who showed that, you know, even by age five, um, children start having, in the US anyway, people start having, um, children start having these ideas that, you know, if you have um, darker skinned parents, or I think even he found, I shouldn't misstate it, but I think even body morphology might be something that children think is stable then throughout your life. Okay, so, so children start having by age five, like these kinds of biases about what's stable, but it does seem to be that that's probably because they've learned it already from their environment, right? Now, um, there might be some biases, some kind of evolved biases there as well. But now if you start thinking about the diverse ways that um, ethnic categories are 
um, defined cross-culturally and the cues that people use for defining those, it starts falling apart in terms of this strongly intergenerationally inherited and stable notion. Um, so for example, where I work in Highland Peru, you become Quechua by speaking the language, right? So I could become Quechuista. It's interesting even they have, they use the Ista ending where I work. So it's not being Quechua, but it's being Quechuista, which is kind of like the same ending and probably Portuguese also has one, but Spanish and English mm -hmm. where it's like anarchists, right? You can become mm -hmm. an anarchist. <laughs> you can become a socialist, right? It's not something that you're born with. Um, so I could become Quechuista if I learn Quechua really well. I'm not sure that I'm there yet. Um, women who marry into the community and then learn Quechua from an Aymara community, they are called Quechuista, like they're um, as Quechuista as somebody who learns it in childhood. So, um, and then we use these funny interviews where we ask people, what would be the identity of a child that was born in one group, but raised by another set of parents? So it's a bit of forced situation, but it helps differentiate, you know, the sort of genetic inheritance pathway from the cultural inheritance pathway. And in those scenarios, a hundred percent of what matters for being Quechuista or Aymarista, these ethno-linguistic categories, is who you're raised with, right? It doesn't matter at all who your parents were. If you ask Americans that about being black or white, it would be your parents who you were born with. <laughs> but something that's kind of interesting and goes back to a previous question you asked about, do, do we have, or we were talking about, do we have um, biases for thinking about race specifically, or some, that wasn't exactly your question, but I took it there. And um, we see that in other cultural groups where phenotype is different between cultural groups, it doesn't necessarily get thought about in the same way. So I'll give you this example of Vezo um, speakers, Vezo community in Madagascar that Rita Studi has studied um, for most of her career. They're, they're um, a Malagasy group. Their neighbors, one of their neighboring groups are Karani, which were um, migrated there from South Asia. And so they can recognize that they're phenotypically distinct, right? people of Malagasy origin versus Indian origin. You could tell, a stranger would be able to tell them apart from looking at them, you know, if, assuming no migration and so forth, the ancestry is um, phenotypically marked. But for Vezo, being Vezo is about what you do, right? It's about the labor that you do. Do you go fishing? Do you um, work with your hands um, for subsistence purposes? You know, do you do agriculture? Those are what matter in terms of your um, social identity. And so um, adults in that context, even though they recognize the, the skin type difference, right? And it's not just skin tone. Um, they would still say that somebody who came in a, um, who was Karani, who came to be Vezo, who came into the Vezo community would become Vezo if they just worked as the Vezo did. Right, so, so I think that we've come to naturalize in the US and perhaps in Europe as well, the idea that once you have a phenotypic difference between groups, that's what it means, right? It, if you're, you can't change your blackness, um, but you can't change your whiteness, um, 
but those categories could be constructed in ways that were way more cultural, right? And way more about performance and what you did. And the phenotype wouldn't have to be what makes you a part of the group, right? And it's not that people in other cultures are blind to phenotype, it's just that that's not what it means to be a member of a group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's... Yeah, it's not necessary, sorry, that we, and it's actually very rare, as far as we can tell so far, in it for adults cross-culturally, to think of identity as like in, inherited at childhood. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 I was just about to say that that's very interesting. I mean, looking across those sociocultural differences in how people categorize people from their own group and other groups. But uh, earlier we talked about uh, aspects of our evolution. What about child development? I mean, are there aspects of child development that we know about? I, I mean, for example, uh, psychological mechanisms that might come online at particular ages, stages of development. I'm not sure if people still talk about stages of development nowadays, but yeah. anyway, uh, that might lead them to develop the ability to distinguish between ethnic groups. I think so. I think that some of those mechanisms are more generally cultural learning mechanisms. Um, so there's some really beautiful work showing that um, the ways that caretakers is usually the way it's been studied, but I'm sure it's just adults that children care, pay attention to, um, talk about new social categories, makes them think differently about whether it's inherited or essentialized or not. So for example, you can say, here's a group of people who eat carrots, right? Presumably, like the, a five-year-old child has never thought of a group of people who eat carrots. Um, and if you say, if you say these are people who eat carrots versus for other kids, um, this developmental psychologist said that they were carrot eaters. So it was a between subject design. And if you tell them that they're carrot eaters, the children start thinking about them as essential groups as groups that are meaningful, that you can ascribe new traits to as identities that are less likely to change, right? So um, I, I'm not a linguist, I forget exactly what that construction is. Like being a carrot eater is like a noun, right? A noun phrase, carrot eater. Um, at least in English, I don't know if it's been done in other signals to the child that that is kind of an essential category, an important category to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. Um, exactly how that interfaces with other cues. So for example, like if people have studied and it might be interesting to look at does the carrot if the carrot eater is something about what they eat as opposed to you know, a language that they speak or a way that they speak, does that interact in an interesting way where, for example, one might predict that because we do seem to have these early developing biases for thinking about language as important, um, that maybe if you use the term something, something like English speakers as opposed to speaks English, right, that that might be a particularly powerful cue. I don't, 
I think that that would be interesting. So I think we have some evidence already that some cues are more important for children as they kind of ratchet up their understanding of which categories are important in their world. And then also some kind of social information, some ways of getting social information are, is also important. So they probably um, pay attention to the way that you know language is constructed, whether it's a noun, probably pay attention to um, how more generally like how prestigious people around them or people that they trust talk about these groups. There's also some developmental evidence that um, even I think with infants that joint action is really important for kind of putting agents together in a group. So, um, you know, do they make the same kind of activity together? Do they jump together? Might be an early developing cue. Um, again, I think that there's a bit of a bridge that we still need to make from these kinds of cues that infants might even be able to pay attention to, to how does that get placed onto, oh, this is a group of people that you shouldn't interact with, or this is a group of people that acts in the same way that you should have stereotypes about, right? I think that that bridge in terms of research still has to be connected between the cues and like what, what exactly you do with that information that these are somehow socially connected people or similar kinds of people. Mm -hmm. So before moving on to the second part of our interview, which will be about reproduction, just also to wrap some things up a little bit, because I guess that we've been talking about this throughout our conversation, but uh, what would you say, uh, uh, I mean, of course, there's some sort of gene culture coevolutionary framework operating here when it comes to ethnic psychology. So uh, well, how do you say it works? I mean, how is, how is it applied in this context? Yeah, I do say I do think we have some open questions. So minimally, we know that humans, like other animals, are a very social species. I'd be surprised, for example, like if chimpanzees and other primates didn't also have some sort of group psychology, right? Mm -hmm. They do live in groups um, at sexual maturity. Some members of one group tend to migrate to another group. So there's something like that that we probably share in terms of cognitive mechanisms, genetic cognitive mechanisms, right? Evolved cognitive mechanisms with other primates. With those kind of tools in mind, with those genetically evolved um, adaptations in mind, we start at some point over the last, I'm storytelling here, but like over the last million years, you know, it depends what you count as culture, but you know, maybe chimpanzees have some amount of socially transmitted information so maybe over mm -hmm. the last six million years we start being a cultural more cultural species and that changes the types of groups that we have from ones where as the case in chimpanzee like there's some maybe cultural differences that are correlated with where you live but that are not very meaningful to the ones that we have today and so um cultural evolution clearly is working with the kind of cognitive predispositions that we have at some point and um, those cognitive predispositions probably shape the form of culture that cultural evolution takes not to mention the cognitive predispositions that we have and adaptations that we have for being cultural not just for being group species and now i think the final question to make it fully co-evolutionary um, would be now that we're you know have cultural groups 
um, has that shaped the way that humans think about it, uh, about groups? Um, has, not, has that shaped natural selection on genes? And some of the evidence that, for example, children do pay attention to language as an important clue mm. of where, of who to pay attention to, who to socialize with, um, potentially, or what stereotypes to have. That starts to be evidence in favor, perhaps, of the fact that being a cultural species has affected the shape of genetic evolution as well to give us some predispositions to pay attention to cultural information that, in this case, maps onto groups. So I think we still need more work to do to, like, more lines of evidence to kind of support that last causal arrow back from culture to genetic evolution. Um, but I think it's um, very plausible given how deeply cultural of a species we are, probably how deep in our evolutionary history we've been at least somewhat cultural, um, and kind of the importance of paying attention to learning from people who have the right or useful kinds of information. Um, and coordinating with them, at least for those two reasons. Mm -hmm. So changing topics, another thing that you study is social effects on reproduction. So, I mean, what are these, what are basically the people that might have some effect on reproduction? It seems like everyone. Um, so this is another thing that makes it very, very puzzling, I think, for evolutionary minded social scientists, right, is that, um, fit, you know, fitness, reproductive outcomes are going to be some of the closest proxies that we have for fitness, right? How many children do you have? When do you start having them? Of mm -hmm. course, how many you survive as well? Um, and what seems to be, at least to me, somewhat puzzling is that we clearly are socially influenced to, by, by a lot of people to um, in some cases have fewer children than what would seem to be use good for kind of fitness maximizing or optimizing purposes. Um, there's some research suggesting that, so we're obviously influenced by our family, by our parents, by kin, um, but also by friends. And there's some research by Leslie Newson suggesting that um, maybe when we are influenced by our family in terms of social messages, um, by parents specifically, that those messages that we get from parents, at least in low fertility societies like the US, tend to be more pronatal, tend to be more encouraging of having kids. But when we think about the messages that we might be getting from friends that don't have an inclusive fitness interest in um, our having children, um, those tend to be less pronatal. Okay, so it is possible that the so even the social messages that we get if that, that's one pathway through which, you know, our fertility might be influenced is just the types of messages that we get about what's appropriate or what's optimal or what would be good. And it's possible that even though we're influenced by everyone, <laughs> it seems mm -hmm. that the kinds of messages are different um, depending on who's giving them to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, what kinds of, uh, what kind of impact do family members, for example, have on fertility outcomes? Yeah, so I think it's complicated because it is culture dependent. So um, one thing that's very clear is that having, for example, a mother around is very 
good for your children, especially infants not dying. And that's going to be more important in places where infant mortality is high, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, sure you know, and probably other people have done a better job of describing it in this show that grandmothers are <laughs> a topic of very contested topic, but very likely that either because they were selected for this purpose, you know, that grandmotherhood or postmenopausal life was selected for this purpose or not, you know, if you have a grandmother around, that's probably going to be really good in terms of infant mortality. And then other family members to some extent, but less reliably so, also are going to reduce infant mortality. Um, but now when you start getting to other outcomes, like how many children do you have, that seems to be, or when do you start reproducing, that seems to be very context dependent. So um, I've been so far mostly working on age at first birth on this topic. And um, this is another, you know, it's kind of, I also try to avoid politics because I think it's hard to get right the messaging, but this is another case where the US and maybe Western Europe really moralizes a behavior that maybe need, doesn't need to be moralized, which is having children at young ages, mm. right? So mm. age pregnancy is the way that most of this literature is talked about and it's seen as like, a public bad, right? Like that it's, it has negative outcomes for um, the children, for the women who are reproducing and so forth. And, you know, that might be true in certain contexts, but it's definitely not cross-culturally universal. And again, for theoretical evolutionary reasons, it's clear that, you know, late teenage years are not particularly problematic physiologically to have for people to start having children. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we start seeing with age at first birth is that it's very stigmatized to have an early age at first birth in the US. And in those kinds of contexts, it looks like parents are having your parents around or having your parents more involved um, delays when you start having children. But that's not culturally universal. Like in other contexts, we're able to see that um, parent, having your parents around can help you start reproducing earlier because, for example, they might give you the resources that you need to have the equivalent of like a marriage, let's say play bride price or dowry, depending on the context. So money that you need in order to get a spouse, um, which in some countries is really important for reproduction, or in some contexts is really important for reproducing is to get married first. It's not always the case. So those those effects start being really variable and that's where it starts getting interesting, I think, <laughs> is that in some places, you know, culture can lead you down the path of um, the normative thing is to start reproducing at age 14 or the normative thing is for you to start reproducing at age 25, right? Very different norms, that's a 10 year difference. Fitness maximizing isn't, you know, the, the environments in these two cases are not so different that you know it's optimal for you to start reproducing at 25 it never is like 25 is never the fitness maximizing time to start reproducing right and so parents are having very different effects in these two contexts and it's, and i don't mean to say that parents are always pronatal in mm -hmm. high fertility contexts because we're actually seeing some evidence that there's also potentially intergenerational conflict where in some societies, for example, having your parents might still be reproductive while you're trying to decide whether to start reproducing, right? And so that lends itself to some amount of intergenerational conflict. Even if you're still, you know, cooperating with your parents, you might 
be negotiating, is it your parent or is it you who's going to reproduce this year? Not to mention like maybe you're negotiating, is it you or your sister or your brother who's going to reproduce this year if there are limited resources? So those are different mechanisms. Um, you know, when you have actual resource conflict, those are different mechanisms whereby family members specifically might have an impact on your reproductive decisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of stigma you talked about that in industrialized and perhaps even more so in Western societies, we see surrounding uh, early ages at first birth. Uh, could it have something to do with the fact that perhaps in these kinds of societies, I mean, slower life history strategies are favored because, I mean, people are told to uh, invest more in their education, in their careers, in their professions and stuff like that. So perhaps, I mean, ages at first birth uh, are ideally in these societies delayed. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I guess my only caveat would be that those strategies of slower reproduction sometimes mm. i'm a little bit hesitant to call them life history strategies they are but i know that um life history strategies again one of those words that's used very differently by different researchers yeah. um, so at least like you know later reproductive strategies slower reproductive strategies um for sure are favored in these um kind of low fertility post-industrial societies but they're not favored for any kind of ecological reasons. It's not the case that if you were living in the US today and you, you know, didn't go to college um, and you started reproducing instead, it's not like that would be a worse fitness outcome, right? So these strategies are being favored, but that's because that cultural norm is so strong. And it's mm -hmm. not clear to me that that cultural norm is kind of the ideal for fitness purposes, cultural norm for the environment that we live in. So that's the only reason why, has another reason why I hesitate to use like the optimal life history strategy. And then I think like a, a question that the evolutionary community should be asking ourselves and some of us are, is why did those kinds of slow life history strategies or slow reproducing norms evolve, culturally evolve, right? At a certain time and place. Yeah. Um, and why they seem to be spreading, to be honest. Like, I like to tell, ask my students um, about kind of little quizzes about kind of what, which, what is the fertility rate of like different countries in the world today? And um, I might get this wrong if I don't look it up, but <laughs> I, I will use Bangladesh as one of the examples because it's had one of the most dramatic drops mm -hmm. in fertility and people's stereotypes, at least my students' stereotypes, are still about a Bangladesh from maybe like the mid 20th century where fertility rates were very high. And fertility rates in Bangladesh today are, I think, maybe like three, two something, two point something. Um, Probably quite... two point something, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So quite low. Um, so I think, um, I think our students have not realized, and a lot of people who are worried about 
population explosion, which sometimes I am. Um, sometimes I have those anxieties about just ecological catastrophe, but mostly that's us, right? Like mostly that's people in rich countries that are causing those ecological catastrophes. Yeah. Uh, but I think they don't realize that like fertility rates just been dropping and we're globally like a richer, richer planet in most ways, but we tend to see this pretty consistent pattern that as countries or societies get richer, you know, infant mortality drops and then um, and oftentimes accompanied by women getting educated, that seems to have a causal effect also on fertility dropping. Um, so I think that's a big puzzle. Like why are those norms so powerful? Why do people opt into those? Maybe some people would say that they're coerced into them, but at least in some cases, it seems to be a choice that people opt into those reproductive norms. Mm -hmm. And what is the relationship between, if any, of course, between religiosity and fertility rates? Yes, and this is a project I really want to do. I have to still pre-register this study, but um, in a lot of the world, more religious people, and especially like in a lot of the um, post-industrial world with low, fertil low fertility societies, more religious people tend to have more kids. Actually, there was just a paper in The Economist um, you might have seen about um, Orthodox Jews having really high fertility rates compared to secular Jews, like um, I think six times the rate of secular Jews, and that is changing the demographic composition of Israel, for example. Um, but that's true in the US as well, like people who self-identify as more religious or go to church more tend to have more children. And so there are a couple of mechanisms that have been proposed or reasons for that correlation, let's say. Um, one of them is that maybe just being more religious is a proxy for being more traditional along like a whole host of ideas having to do with um, kind of not having adopted these post-industrial or maybe some people call them modern, although that's a very loaded term, um, norms. Another possibility and there's some evidence for this as well, is that religious communities actually provide you like direct alloparental support, right? They help you raise your kids. So of course, if you have people who are helping you raise your kids, then you're going to be able to have more kids if you want it. I think that that's uh, true that that happens, but I don't think that's a full explanation for why religious people in low fertility post-industrial settings have more kids. And then a third possibility, which is not necessarily incompatible, is that there is increasing evidence that religious ideologies, particularly ones with like moralistic beings, beings that kind of judge what you do, tend to develop norms that are maybe encourage prosociality or encourage norms that are somehow good for the group. And it could be that pronatal norms, at least in current contexts, are in a sense, good for the group, like all else equal groups that have pronatal norms expand and ones that have antinatal norms are not going to expand as much. Um, and maybe a religious ideology helps norm compliance, right? So those are kind of three proposals on the table. Um, what I think ha we have not studied well yet and is how beyond low fertility societies, beyond the big gods, religions, like beyond Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, 
how do other forms of religiosity correlate with fertility? And so I'll have to tell you later because I don't know yet, but we do have data to look at um, kind of other kind other forms of religious belief and um, other kinds of religious deities, so more animistic in nature, for example. Um, do people who believe in those deities more strongly have higher fertility? Um, my prediction right now, I would say, is probably not. Probably this is something to do with modernization, right, or whatever that process is. So um, was that the first option I described? Um, but we're going to be able to test that soon, and I can get back to you. Um, but I, I think it's uh, a, a possibility with this data set to differentiate some of those accounts. Mm -hmm. Um, another question, do men benefit from higher fertility than what would be optimal for women? Yeah, I am skeptical of a lot of claims to that effect. Mm. I think it's possible, but I think it's only under a very narrow set of circumstances. So I'll start with the, what, the intuition that I want most evolutionary minded people to come away with is that if there are, first of all there are about equal numbers of women and men in most societies that sex ratio varies a little bit and there's some interesting research on that but generally you're going to be pretty close to 50 50 and in addition to that in a monogamous context or within a not even monogamous in a pair bond so if a woman and a man are um, reproducing with each other and want to maximize their fertility. So this is a very cartoon stereotype, right? They're not going, and they're not able to replace each other afterwards, right? They can't just like take advantage of you, divorce you or kill you, and then move on to the next partner. So if they're pair bonded for life, this is the cartoon example, they should have the same exact optimum, right? Mm. So, you know, a, a man is going to only, let, let's start with monogamous case. They're only gonna have this one uterus to take advantage of, and they're gonna to try to get the best deal out of that uterus, and the woman only has one uterus, her own, and she's going to try to get the best deal out of that uterus. So they should be in agreement with each other. The next step kind of, that I think maybe people would be surprised by is like, let's say you add another woman to this marriage. So you have a polygynous marriage with mm. two women, okay? But you still have the same rules where you can't just like divorce the woman <laughs> and leave and get another one or kill her and get another one. It would still be the case. There might be some conflict over resources. That's an extra complication. But it would still be the case that for a given amount of resources, a woman and a man would still have the same optimum for a given uterus, right? Now, of course, within like the context of, um, like if you start adding multiple actors to the game or the possibility of like having other partners out there, then you start having conflict over resources, right? Over, well, do you, I really want to give the resource to my first wife or my second wife? Or of course, like one wife is going to want all, all the resources for her children and some, I, in some very selfish world and not have to share them as much with a co-wife, right? But that's a different claim than the reproductive optimum is different. It's about resource allocation. And 
So there can be these conflicts that start arising, of course, right? There's going, there's lots of room for conflicts of interest between men and women um, in terms of reproduction. But something that I think we often forget is that going back to the sex ratio, there's a limited number <laughs> of other mates out there. So I think sometimes when we think about like men on average would benefit from doing X, it glosses over the fact that, you know, if one man, for example, has two wives, then some other man in a 50-50 sex ratio society is not going to get any woman, right? And so what's optimal for the man at the top of a status hierarchy might not be what's optimal for the man at the bottom of a status hierarchy. So um, in fact, like the man at the bottom of the status hierarchy, potentially if they don't have mates yet, would be really incentivized to give a potential partner a really good deal in whatever terms she wanted, right? So I, th I think that it's possible that there will be um, some men who would benefit from having more children, let's say, or potentially fewer children, but um, like larger children, let's say, or more nurse children than what a woman would want. Um, but I think you have to start making some extra assumptions and it probably wouldn't be the case for all men. So that was, yeah, an art, a, a side branch article that I wrote because I thought some of the um, arguments were not very well developed. So Kristen Snopkowski and Rebecca Sear also helped um, us think through kind of what would it take for that to be true. Mm -hmm. So we've been fo focusing on fertility but I would like to ask you now, what are female dispersing groups and uh, the, do they influence the age at, at, what, uh, at which menopause occurs? Yeah, it's funny too. When we talk about non-human animals, we tend to talk about female dispersing groups. And then when we talk about humans, we tend to call them patrilocal. Um, but yeah. it's... But patrilocality refers to kind of a cultural norm and you know, female dispersing is like a non-cultural behavior, right? So mm -hmm. um, in a lot of primates, for example, so chimpanzees are tend to be female dispersing um, at sexual maturity, females are more likely to leave the natal group to join another group. And for humans, um, that would kind of correspond to a patrilocal norm, meaning that at marriage, a, um, a couple or will tend to live at the males, close to the male's family, mm -hmm. family. And um, there's some evidence. So there, there are species differences. And then within humans, there's cultural variation, as always. That's kind of what's amazing about us. So there's maybe some evidence that were mostly ambilocal. Most societies, especially earlier in evolutionary history, perhaps, um, where there's like less resource competition. So this is based on um, some archeological evidence, but also some of the ethnographic evidence that um, more foraging heavy groups tend to be ambilocal. And that means that you get to decide whether you go live with the woman's side of the family or the man's side of the family. There aren't very strong norms. In terms of the behavior, it tends to be slightly patrilocal, it looks like, slightly biased towards patrilocality. There's not a very strong bias, it looks like, so far. Um, 
So some biologists have suggested that for some species of whales, for example, um, female dispersing group, having um, females disperse at sexual maturity is going to put them in reproductive conflict with what we would call mothers-in-laws, <laughs> but what they're actually like females that are not related to them. They're going to join a group where they're not really related to anybody, whereas mm -hmm. the older females are related to a lot of members of that group. Yep. And so um, some evolutionary biologists, Kat and Johnston, for example, have um, suggested and built models that show that in, under those circumstances where a young female who's starting her reproductive career has a really strong interest in reproducing when she joins a new group because she doesn't have any other inclusive fitness avenues. But older, mature um, females in that group have already built um, social ties, like so have already built, um, <laughs> built communities, like reproduce and have inclusive fitness benefits in the other members of that group. So for example, sons might be in that group. And so they have less of an interest, a fitness interest in reproducing. And so they've proposed that under those situations of reproductive conflict, it's possible that um, early reproductive cessation, something like menopause, may have evolved, may have been favored, so that the older females would not enter into reproductive conflict with the younger ones, and instead go through kind of a grandmothering role again. Now, it's a very compelling argument because it seems that um, you know, there aren't very many species that undergo something like reproductive cessation and they're females, you know, humans being a famous one, but some cetaceans are, some whales are another example, and they do seem to have this kind of possibility of um, mothering, of like, cultural transmission or direct investment in their sons, ways that are helpful to their fitness, and they are also female dispersing. So some of the evidence supports that. I will admit that I'm skeptical that that's what drives the human case, just because we don't seem to be as strongly female dispersing, um, at least based on the ethnographic and some of the archeological literature. So it could be that deeper in our evolutionary history, we were more strongly female dispersing, more like a chimpanzee model, right? And so it's possible, but it might be, at least as far as I can tell right now, maybe unknowable. Um, because the Paleolithic is hard <laughs> to investigate <laughs> in terms of social behavior. So. Yeah. So just one last question or topic. Uh, earlier, we talked about what we've been seeing across industrialized and post-industrial societies when it comes to the demographic transition. I mean, in some places, below, below replacement fertility and that kind of thing. So. Do you have any explanation for that? I mean, as far as we know, is there one explanation that perhaps is the best out there to explain uh, how we got here? You probably know that I'll be like, no, it's never simple. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> yeah. But I think what a lot of people have proposed, they're partial, partially right. So a lot of evolutionary researchers like to point to the fact that raising children has become more expensive, right? So like, how do you get your child to go raise them all the way to maturity, invest in their going to college, um, probably maybe help them set up a house. I know that in a lot of the world, there's a lot of, uh, there's been a shift for children moving back in with their parents because life is so expensive, right? So this mm -hmm. all kind of resonates with people that it's, 
each child raising them to be like an adult is becoming more expensive. And so, of course, as you know, evolutionary researchers would say there's a quantity quality trade off. And so you have to invest more per child. You have to have fewer if you don't want them to suffer in terms of quality. So that something like that seems to be going on. But I find that to be an insufficient explanation because it doesn't explain why people agree that their children have to be so educated. Right? Like, <laughs> this is useless. <laughs> it obviously makes sense in terms of like a particular status hierarchy that we've all bought into, but it doesn't explain why did we buy into that status hierarchy. And so for that, I think we do need some more historical explanations. And, um, you know, I do think that there are several mechanisms that have been proposed. So Leslie Newson talks about the breaking of kinship ties, you know, as I mentioned earlier, changing the types of messages that you get. So if you're living as people migrate to cities, like they are farther away from their family and maybe less prone to those pro-social messages as well. Now, it's also the case that you know, as Rebecca Sear has pointed out, like if you're far away from family, you're not going to have as much social support to raise those children. So it does, mm. you know, there's a feedback loop, it becomes harder. So that, now we're back to a, still a historical question of like, well, why did people start moving to cities? And that's definitely not my expertise, but I do think that is part of the question also is like, why does, or why are cities so compelling for people? And maybe there are, you know, economic reasons having to do with limited land um, and like conflict like inheritance conflicts um but that's no longer the case right like now there are villages and like the iberian peninsula that are being sold to rich outsiders because they're like so small and um you know we'd be happy to have people come back and that uh, getting that norm going again i think is really hard so we're having like these path dependencies that are kind of locking us into these new um these new status hierarchies that are hard to get away from but i do think i'll just leave with like one thought of something that i think is underappreciated which is like different groups there's probably something like group level copying we might call it cultural group selection um <clears throat> but i know that might might be um controversial to some of some viewers but um you know if some societies go through certain demographic paths and certain industrialization paths. And then in a lot of these cases become richer actually. So there's this period in time when fertility, sorry, infant mortality drops before infant mortality drops that shifts the population pyramid in a way that you have like a large um, proportion of your population being adults um, and non-dependents. So not very many children, not very many older people that um, produces, <clears throat> sorry, a lot of wealth for a society. And it might be that, you know, this is a group level phenomena, which I think, which I think is why it's useful to talk about it as a group level feature, maybe cultural group selection. So these societies become potentially wealthy because of this demographic shift called the demographic dividend. And it seems very plausible to me that that's part of the mechanism whereby you get copying of these norms, right? You get, you see some cultures, not because they know about the demographic dividend, but just see what other cultures are doing and say, oh, wow, that looks fancy. And now we have to ask like, why does it look fancy? But like, that looks like an impressive outcome. Let's shift our norms, let's shift our investments in that direction as well. 
I'm not saying let's level explanation, but I do think those types of explanations to figure out like why do these norms, you know, get copied from one society to the other it has to be part of the question, um, the answer as well. Yeah. So uh, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Um, so I mostly have my work on my website. It's linked through, so I'm at UC Davis, as you mentioned. So I don't even know my own website. I think it's a Google sites, but it's linked from my UC Davis website. So um, it should be easy to Google. I also am on Twitter, but not very active on Twitter. So. Um, but I'm happy to have conversations with anybody who wants to contact me and my email, that one is easy to remember, is moya at ucdavis.edu. Okay, great. So Dr. Moya, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show and it's been a fascinating conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk, maybe too much. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everybody, thank you for watching this episode until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and consider making a pledge there, starting at $1 per month. You also have links to PayPal. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett Perga, Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans, Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Varen, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingarder, Becca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegar, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, O'Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurban, Simon Colombo, George Pinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguenzo, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreff, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Eugnig, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Desaraújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidis, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford, and Sunny Smith. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stefaniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanag, Dam Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardos France, Thomas Trumbull, and Noon Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.